Crank up the volume and get ready for real-world bird hunting by listening to the Wingman Podcast by Eastman's. Now your host, Todd Helms. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by High Mountain Seasonings down in Riverton, Wyoming. I specifically want to talk to you today about the rubs that those guys have. And I'm not talking about back rubs. I'm talking, or foot rubs for that matter. I'm talking about the rubs that you put on meat, seasonings. I've been using the High Mountain Seasonings rubs for a couple years now, and where I find they just absolutely shine is cooking duck breasts and goose breasts on a super hot grill or over a super hot fire. What I like to do is I, I really, really like the garlic pepper rub that High Mountain Seasonings offers. And I like to I like to liberally coat a duck or a goose breast in that stuff in a mixture of olive oil. And then I take it and I put it on a smoking hot grill, hot as I can get it. And I sear that thing just like a ribeye steak. And I pull it off there at about medium rare, um, 120, 125. I let it sit for a little bit, not too long. I slice it thin and then I sprinkle more of that garlic pepper rub over the top. I have gotten so many compliments. Guys are just wolfing that stuff down, whether it's at my house or whether it's in a hunting camp or wherever it may be. And it's not me. It's the high mountain seasonings, guys. You need to be you need to be using those products. If you're like me and you might be a little bit, I don't know, uncreative in the kitchen, check out their full lineup of recipes on their website as well. High Mountain you literally has ideas printed out right on there and recipes, easy to follow directions right on the website. I'm telling you, you're going to take these ducks and these geese that are always good eating, always have been good eating, and you're going to take them to the next level with High Mountain Seasonings. So, hey, make sure you're checking out everything that they've got, both at HighMountainJerky.com, their website, and in your local grocery store or whatever sporting goods retailer that you use. It's the product is probably there. Well, hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Wingman Podcast, and I've got the distinct honor of having Ed Arnett on with me again. Ed, you've changed jobs since the last time we had you on the podcast. Give us the lowdown, man. I have. Hey, great to see you, Todd. Great Good to, to be see back. You too. Um, yeah, so uh, last November 1st, actually, I started as the CEO of the Wildlife Society, my uh, professional wildlife society, a wildlife biologist. So I uh, I couldn't turn that one down. That that was too good of an opportunity to cap my career off. Uh, so really enjoying it too. It's a great it's a great way to give something back to my professional society and cap off the career. And um, and uh, real excited to be part of the Wildlife Society. And I'm still teaching it. Colorado State and still okay. doing fun stuff in the woods with guys like you. So it's, absolutely, it's all so cap off a career. You're not thinking of being retired soon, are you? Oh, I, I, uh, that's a, <laughs> I would probably retire as soon as I possibly could. But you know, there's that little healthcare bridge and uh, and uh, financial arrangement one has to have to actually do it comfortably. So no, it'll be uh, the way the way my contract is structured. I'm good through uh, 2024, I think, and then uh, assuming everybody's happy, we'll do another one, and that'll get me uh, that'll get me to where I want to be for for retirement. So I got a few more years yet. So I was say, man, I'm not as think as you old I am. So yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you've had some pretty life changing occurrences happen since you and I pounded the sagebrush last fall for sage grouse. And that was why I wanted to get you back on, not just to talk about that, but we said at the time when we did the hunt, hey, we need to jump on and do another podcast, catch up, see how summer's going, see where we're at with our dogs. We both have young dogs. Talk about that. Talk about plans for the fall and just chit chat. I I haven't seen you in a couple of months. We were, we bumped into each other down in Utah at the the Hunt Hunt Expo. Expo. Yeah, Yeah, that was, that was good. But man, you've had some pretty big, Pretty big changes since then. Give us the lowdown. Uh, I assume you're referencing not just the job, but also the. Yeah, you already. Uh, uh, 
I'm did talking, the job. Yeah, got I'm about it. We're lucky. We're lucky to still have you, brother. <laughs> yeah, I got a nice new uh, scar right there on my chest, and uh, I had open heart surgery at the end of May. Okay. Uh, and you know, it wasn't. Uh, thank, thankfully, it wasn't like a clogged up scenario, widowmaker or anything like that. I just got a lovely congenital gift from my father's side of the family. Um, all the men on that side have heart disease. I just found that out. I never knew my dad. I met that side of the family just a few years ago and, uh, they took, they warned me of it. So I've been watching and I I've been working with a cardiologist for about two years. So I've known what the issue is and it's a bad aortic valve. Okay. So, uh, it wore out and we, we replaced it. I had a great surgeon. Um, and, and he actually found a, an area that was developing an aneurysm in my aorta. So that, that would have killed me. No question. So Glad we got we that. Got fixed that. So, yeah. The good news is they said the pipes are clean. So, you know, good. there's not, good. not any build up. So, and I've been getting better every day. I, uh, you'll appreciate this as will your listeners. So I asked the doc, I said, when can I hike vigorously in the hills and shoot a shotgun? And he said, three months. I said, okay, so I start back calculating from September 1st on the last date I can have the surgery. So so I did it at the end of May. And Priorities. Uh, Got to have priorities. Absolutely. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So anyway, I'm nine weeks, 10 weeks in now, and um, I'll be hiking in the sand hills chasing prairie grouse come September 1st and sage grouse later in the year. So man, good for you. Other, other critters. So. Good for you. Yeah. I, we were fingers were crossed and prayers were said for you. That's for sure, man. Um, Thank, thanks for that. I, I appreciate the correspondence while I was in the hospital and healing and stuff. I appreciate that from you guys it means a lot. Trust me. Yeah, absolutely. We're all a brotherhood in the, in the hunting fraternity, aren't we? We sure we are we don't always act that way but we certainly are and you know it's it's something that i think we could do a better job of but it's uh you know we all have the same end goal and at the end of the at the end of the day that is to get out and chase birds or chase elk or chase deer yeah. or whatever it might be work you on know? conservation yeah save it for the next yeah. pay it forward yeah. save it for the next generation all exactly yeah. yeah exactly exactly well, it sounds like you're doing well. You're healthy. I've talked to you a little bit here, here and there. You know, we're still working on the sage grouse project. Uh, we'll have a teaser out in the, hopefully in the next few weeks. Uh, big project slated for completion a little bit later in the in the year. But I think we're wrapped up with everything we need. We had a phenomenal hunt with you. It was a really good time, and I know oh, I. I know I enjoyed it. You know, we got into some birds. We had some laughs. We had, we ate, we ate grouse. We, I mean, it was fun. I won't say I converted you on grouse, but I sure made a damn good believer of you. No, you, you did. Good. No, you Those did. A hundred, a hundred percent. Because that's, I think that's one of the sage grouse get a bad rap. You know, I think sage grouse, sharp tail, yep. ptarmigan, spruce grouse, any dark meated native bird has a tendency to get a That's bad a rap. Mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because quite frankly, most of us cook them way too long, you know, and you, man, you took a couple of big old cranky bombers and you're like, yeah, I, I think these will be okay. And it was like- You eating... have to go, weren't you? <laughs> I was, I was, 100%. And you cooked them up and I went, okay, I'm in and I can- <laughs> I, I have since duplicated that method on everything from mallards to Canada geese, sandhill cranes. I mean, you name it, I've done it's it. The only way I'll cook crane, um, I shouldn't say that. I've I've done a few other things, and especially with the legs. But with the breasts, it's just too damn good to make it like a ribeye on the grill. Oh, it's spectacular. And for those of you guys that are listening, what I'll just let you explain it, Ed. Because people are going, okay, how'd you do it? If it's that good, how'd you do it? And, and you posted it on one of your blogs. So um, the, the recipe's out there. This is ridiculously simple. You know, olive oil to help sear, you know, get a good sear uh, from a real hot grill. Um, put that olive oil on, season it to taste, and then medium rare. Uh, yeah. Sometimes those birds are 30 seconds away from turning into shoe leather 
are tasting like the sage grouse we all hear they taste about right. like right because they're overcooked it's just got to be meat and medium at most i'll cook my wife's a little bit more she doesn't like it quite as rare as i do um but medium at most and that olive oil helps sear it in it's the simplest rest campfire recipe barbecue grill recipe you could possibly imagine and it's always good always i i started doing that with um with mallards this in in november through january and I bring them home and I used to pluck a lot of my mallards because I like to whole roast them or I like to do the Gordon Ramsay method yeah. of, of steering a duck breast with the skin on and its own rendered fat. Well, the problem is we get so many rice breast birds here in our area that, I mean, it can be up to out of a five bird mallard limit. You could have three birds with rice breast. And by the time you get one complete, you know, get a breast plucked, you've done all that work. And you open it up and it's rice breasted. And it's like, the only thing you can do with it then, if you're still going to eat it, is to, you know, basically make like snack sticks or something that gets cooked to high heaven out of it to kill that parasite. But so I I just, I'm back to breasting my waterfowl, especially ducks. You know, I'm back to breasting them out and taking skin and the legs back and taking that. And then, like you said, drizzle them in olive oil, put whatever steak seasoning you like on them and throw them either in a smoking hot cast iron skillet or a smoking hot grill of some sort. I've done them over wood, wood fire coals, you know, but I tell you yep. what, my kids, I, they, I can't beat them off of that stuff with a stick. You know, it's like, leaders out of them too. <laughs> yeah. I, I get, I got a, I got a four-year-old and a seven-year-old fighting over mallard breast, you know, and it's like <laughs> doing something right. Yeah. That's about the only way I'll cook mallard breasts. I pluck them every once in a while and cook yeah. them whole. That's good too, of course. Oh, it is. Lots of ways yeah. You can make all this stuff, but I'm, I don't know why fix it when it ain't broken, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's so simple and easy and fast. You know, we got down to the end of, end of bird season in February and I'm looking at what's in my freezer, and I've got more elk and antelope and deer in my freezer than I do waterfowl, which is usually the opposite because I've eaten that other <laughs> stuff down, and not this year, not at not at all. It was it was awesome. The other, I, so I, I I took what you did, especially when it comes to ducks and geese, because even goose breast was phenomenal this way, and I did the whole seared thing, got it medium rare, and then I sliced it like real thin. Mm-hmm. On kind of on an angle across the grain so it's yep. all falls apart in your mouth and then i just sprinkled more seasoning on the top is, is oh, all yeah. I, like spread it out and just sprinkle a little bit more or and this was the real kicker i sprinkled brown sugar on it oh yeah that oh, sounds good my gosh <laughs> i'm gonna have to try that i'm done yeah. you know i'm sprinkling with barbecue sauce you know obviously yeah. you know you're you're basically can put anything you want on it, but uh, any good steak sauce, but it's good the way it, just the way it is, but I'll try the brown sugar. I haven't done that before. Yeah, try that. Try that. You could even That do... sounds like it'd be good with acorn squash and with brown sugar on it from my garden. It'd be really good. You know, I made a, I'm, I made a um, huckleberry Merlot reduction for Valentine's Day with it and drizzled that on it too. And oh, it, man. It was really good. It might have been a little sophisticated, but it was pretty good. I uh, that sounds good. I'm getting hungry now. I got two mutant. I got my tenderloins from my mule deer I shot last year. Nice. <laughs> they're, they're going on the trigger tonight. So there you go. They're making me hungry. Well, and we're getting to be that time of year. I mean, where it's August fourth, and I, you know, we've got listeners all over the country, and the guys in North Dakota are getting ready to shoot early honkers here pretty quick. Yeah, that's coming up quick. It is. It is. When is their early season open? I'm not. I want to say it's like August 15th or 20th or somewhere around there. I've got a buddy in Minot, and uh, he they always do a a, like a golf course depredation shoot on the first day, and I think it's like the 20th or 20 something like that. It's you know it's always a golf course. Yeah, on the on a golf course, you know, we we used to do the same thing in Michigan. You get the golf course owners just get covered in those golf courses get covered yeah. in goose poop, and yeah, and so it's like you guys come out here and shoot all these geese, and so you'd get 
you know, five, six guys out there and they say, you know, you got to be off by eight o'clock. Well, good grief. It gets light at five 30. Yeah. So you're out there as soon as shooting light and swat a bunch of honkers and it's not necessarily sporting, but it makes them happy. And I, t- I tell you what, it opened up a couple of opportunities for us to come back after golf season was closed, yeah. was, was not closed, but ended. But there's still geese flying in and using these golf courses. And they're like, come hunt. And then we'd go set up decoys. And they were happy that they were happy to have us. Yeah. It, was it seems to me you could do that without decoys. You could just deceive them by strolling up in plaid pants and a and a and a golf shirt and uh and a, a nine iron and uh jump out and slay them <laughs> i tell you what the more you look like a hunter and act like a hunter around those birds the less likely you're going to get close to them if you act like a golfer yeah you walk right up to them yeah we always joked about shooting antelope sometimes up in wyoming when they're hanging around the well pad it's like yeah yeah, just put a yellow hard hat on and drive up and jump out. They're just gonna stand there. I the the first the first archery antelope that my wife took. That's exactly how she did it. We stalked and stalked and stalked all day, couldn't get close, and they were feeding through this well pad. And I said, you know what? Why don't you just? I'll just drive up. You jump out, and I'll drive off and sit and watch. I said, just hunker down the opposite side of that big tank and. You know, don't move around, but don't act, you know, you don't have to hide and just yeah. see what they do. They fed right past her like she was in there. Yeah. <laughs> and they're so used to that kind of stuff, but nope. crazy patterns. Yup. Well, I, what are you hearing in Wyoming? I've, I'm getting a mixed bag on, on birds. I'm hearing that, you know, you told me your area is getting some rain and it's nice and green yeah. and. Yeah, there's yeah. other areas that uh, pretty dry, and but I'm I'm getting mixed reports. I haven't seen the data on sage grouse, but buddy of mine's telling me that you know some leks are doing real good, and others are 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 still struggling from the yeah. drought. And that's what that's what we saw this spring on our lek counts with sage grouse, and we went to the Golden Triangle this spring, and with Tom Christensen. Yeah, I was going to ask if you went with Tom. After yeah, we we yeah. went with Tom. And we saw very, very few birds, you know, it yeah. was he, and he said, um, and it was, I, I, I let me qualify that it, we went one morning was all we, was all we did down there. And we, it was nasty. I mean, 20 mile an hour wind blowing snow, super cold. The birds were on the lek first, every lek that we looked at, when we walked down and did actual lek checks on the lek itself, physical physical inspections, there was the birds had been there. The snow had been dusted off. There was fresh, fresh, uh, you know, sequel matter there. They they had been there, but we didn't get a count. We only got a count on one lek. Um, yeah. And then you come up here, we're in the Bighorn Basin, and yeah, the lek that we have, the two leks that are real close to the office here, had lots of birds on them. You know, it was like there was no change in those lecks whatsoever. But that's also reflective or in kind of indicative, I guess, of the state of Wyoming's management plan for sage grouse. They don't really monitor sage grouse in the Bighorn Basin very closely. Our habitat here is very intact. We don't have the cheatgrass invasion. And there's cheatgrass, don't get me wrong, but we don't have it to the levels right. that other places do. But the range um, is still in good shape to where it's, it's good not, shape. It's not yeah. Invading, yes, you know? exactly. And the birds right here in the Powell Valley or the Shone River Valley have the benefit of being able to, to use agriculture as well. And hmm. so they'll go do their thing. And as soon as they hatch, the, the, the one left that's really literally right up here up on top of Polecat Bench out of town, birds will, they'll lack and breed. Hens fly out, nest, and within days of those little ones being born, they're in an alfalfa field. And they're literally in there all summer long. They have food, they have water, they have cover, and they, you know, they just, they, they thrive on that edge habitat, you know. And But they're the exception. You know, you get up on Hart Mountain, the lek up there's had 28 to 32 birds on it, roughly, like the last three years in a row that we've counted it. This year was no exception, and they were just crushing it. But again, they they there's a lot of intact habitat up there. 
and they they could fly down and within a short flight they could be in an alfalfa field and yeah. so that's different than say the golden triangle where you don't have agricultural influence for the most part right. you know the stuff that you and i hunted was the last place that you and i hunted not the last place but one of the places you and i hunted was adjacent to that area last year i wouldn't say it was in it but we were adjacent to it and that habitat wasn't exactly what i would describe as thriving no that range was in pretty pretty rough shape relative to other things we saw and particularly where we actually got into birds that right. range was in pretty good shape they're getting good rains in that part of the world too um I, I haven't seen the data for those. And that may mean that the Chuckers and Huns are doing good in that region too, um, if they're getting good precip, but it depends on the timeliness of the rains. Could kill them too, but right. you know, it, um, it, it's sounding like it's pretty good up there. But yeah, we're, that particular spot we were at, it, it, was, it was in pretty rough shape and the birds right. were just hard to find. Um, the day before we met up on the hunt, I, I hit some stuff that I thought, looked pretty good along you know a riparian area and and nothing and it just took a lot of miles i finally found a covey but it was slim pickings right right and that that spot where we put that one bird up when i had my little incident with the browning i mean that's all <laughs> we, that's all we saw <laughs> i know i know and that that was a sweet little music area with with water and had some good deep sagebrush that wasn't you know, because we talked about that, too, about when you're hunting sage grouse in particular, you can, if you're walking around in waist-tall sagebrush, you're probably not going to find a lot of birds. Yeah. They like it spread out. They've got to be able to get in and out of it. You know, they've got to be able to fly in for cover or run in there for cover, but they have to be able to escape it, too. And if it's too confining and restrictive, they don't like that. It was hilarious. Right. The first night of the hunt, we were waiting on a storm on that big ridge top and we were talking about that walking down the road because there was a patch of greasewood right next to where I call it greasewood. It was just like greater sagebrush. It was like giant, right? right? And I mean, this stuff was like six feet tall and super thick. You're like, yeah, there's no, there's not ever any, not ever, but there's very, usually not many birds in that stuff. And with the first two birds we flushed came out of there. But right. It wasn't real thick though. It was kind of like five or yes. six bushes. It wasn't. Yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Six foot. No, tall. it wasn't a sea of it. But right. and I guess my, the point I'm driving at there was it had just gotten storming too. So those birds very likely could have gone in there to, to hunker down for a bit. That's actually the times I've kicked them out of some of the taller stuff. And there's always exceptions, but just right. windier than hell. Yeah. And, and you knew they were probably going to be on the lee side, and sure enough, the dog got birdie and flushed them. This one, that wasn't our hunt; it was a different. Right. But I'm like, why is the dog so birdie in this? It just didn't look right. I'm like, yeah, the wind, the cover, you know, and and it was interspersed enough with openings that that patch was big and heavy, and you just wouldn't really expect them in there necessarily. But boy, they were right on that lee side. Right. And when they got up, actually, the stuff was tall enough. I never did get a shot at them. So I had to chase down the singles on that hunt. So, well, and it was, and it was funny because when we got separated last year, that evening, that first evening, we kind of were chasing some chuckers around a little bit. And we kind of, I split up and went down one ridge. You went down another. And I got into a, a covey of birds on the backside of the one ridge again, out of the wind, out of the weather, in some of that bigger stuff but they were on the lee side it's like you said they weren't buried in it yeah. and i i think that's important to recognize as that was one of the things i took away from that hunt was man if you're wading through eight miles of knee deep waist deep sagebrush you're probably not going to find many birds right yeah ridge tops yeah ridge tops and those little draws that's that's always a good bet for sure yeah now the last day we really we really put it together and we got a really nice hunt in on that last morning. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. We, we did really well. We did what was seven or eight birds. I mean, we, I think, yeah, I think we, we took possession, both of us. Some we sure. were, yeah, we were, yeah, we, we were, did. we were right there for, for three days or two and a half days of hunting. We were right there. And I it remember was, that one cubby we watched. It was that same cubby that I'd seen before you guys showed up. It was on the private that we couldn't hunt. 
and then they were on the state land a couple days, like second day or so. Remember that, Covey? Mm-hmm. And we sat there too damn long, and they got nervous. We should have just kept driving, and then yep. going out of them. We just sat there trying to figure out a plan, and they got up and flushed. <laughs> That's <laughs> always the way it goes when you when I you know. see birds up from the truck. If you sit and watch them, they get nervous and they leave. Yep. And they yep. knew exactly where to go. You know, to they feel, they to right feel safe. The they flew right over the fence onto the private and sat right down. Right, we could still see them. It was hilarious. Yeah, no, we had we had excellent hunting. You know, it's something that I think people may may ask. You know, well, if if sage grouse are if sage grouse are in a, are in a are in a tenuous position, um, why are we even hunting them? Why 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 are we even getting after them? And that's something that you and I talked about because I know for me. I have I have very personal reasons for it, and I and I I already have a weekend planned out to take my kids and my wife out this year, so they can at least see it and and experience it. I said you got to see this, you got to experience it. You know, even if we don't shoot any of these birds, we got to get the dogs out. We got it. It's just special. What's your take on that? Why hunt these things? You know, it's it's a question that I've fielded so many times and and you know in the state of wyoming they address it all the time with uh the the sage grouse implementation team and and uh you know defending their plan the state defending its approach to to harvest management um because you know a lot of times the industries and others say well if we have to have all these restrictions why are we still hunting them well part of the reason is because you know, the development coupled with other types of habitat loss led us to a situation where uh, harvest has had to be restricted and curtailed. And the states have done a fantastic job, as far as I'm concerned, and most states where they have just followed what the data are telling them uh, in terms of, of restrictions, closures. Wyoming had multiple closures across the state for a number of years, and we're contemplating a statewide closure we actually fought that, and I'm getting to the heart of the question, in part because hunting has never been shown to be, uh, for the most part, to be the driving limiting factor. Of, right. It's almost always related to habitat, quality, habitat loss. Um, make no mistake, sage grouse are not pheasants or bobwhite quail or other types of, of game bird species. They're longer lived. Uh, they they just are and they um, they have high overwinter survival relative to others, as do most of the native game birds um, or those that tend to fare well in these very harsh climates. So you can have what's called an additive effect. Uh, comp- compensatory effect is when you're compensating for uh, uh, deaths that would already occur from natural causes. So young mallard ducks, for example, are probably not coming off the winter range regardless. So there's a compensatory relationship with the human harvest relative to what's going to come go back next spring. Um, that, but that's a little different with sage grouse, but it's a timing issue as well. Um, there are times when that compensatory effect is in play versus the additive effect. And once the broods get to a certain point, and there's, it varies by state, but t- it tends to be... Um, you know, later in the year when you really start seeing they've survived all of the mammalian predation and raptor predation, they're probably going to experience weather uh, deaths and those kinds of things by a certain time in the fall and hunting after that is when you can really start affecting the population that goes into winter, which probably many of them are going to make it anyway, if you see what I'm saying. So they absolutely winter survival. But by and large, when you look at all the factors that affect sage grouse, uh, hunting doesn't rank up there as the number one or two reasons. So, so that's that's part of it. You know, just the basic science of the matter. Um, but you also have a group of advocates like you and I who love to hunt game birds and love to hunt. So if you if if there's no hunting, there's no reason necessarily. Uh, this isn't the the grandest excuse that goes over well with everybody, but it is true that and and particularly when we were looking at a listing potentially of of greater sage grouse when it essentially becomes uh, a federally managed bird with state participation um, the states are not going to want to put sportsman dollars pr dollars um, 
and and uh, people aren't going to be buying licenses. They're going to buy hunting licenses. It's not like you have a sage grouse license, at least yet in Wyoming. Other states do have that, but and they they control them more in a more limited way. But you know, they're not going to want to put those PR dollars into sage grouse per se, and and the sporting dollars have added up well into the hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars. The the count that I saw back in. 2012, I believe the association, Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, estimated sportsman-related dollars uh, totaled about 132 million over a 10-year, about a 12-year period between 2000 and 2012. Um, so that's not chump change, and that was no. going directly to sage grouse research, habitat management, all the things that we were trying to do to put the plans together and get conservation in play. But the other thing that that um, the wildlife agencies did is they they set they set guidelines and principles that that states could follow and set triggers so in colorado for example there are two of the best units that that folks would hunt sage grouse uh and i don't know where we're at this year but the last few years the the lek counts have been down below a certain level for three years in a row and they that triggered a closure for sure. those areas sure. other areas were still open um, the idea is to manage um, to within 10% or less uh, of the total estimated population. So you're not having that additive effect. There's arguments about the science behind that and the day, you know, and such, but by and large, most states are keeping the harvest well below the 10% uh, level. But, you know, in a state like Nevada, where, you know, they've lost so much habitat to fires, you know, to no fault of, of industry or sportsmen and women or anybody. Um, they've had to, they've had to uh, close some seasons down, some units down because there's just nothing there, <laughs> no habitat mm -hmm. and cheat grass is coming in and that kind of thing. And then you've got compounding effects of feral horses and burrows and, and drought and just all kinds <clears throat> of, you know, yeah. all the climate conditions and all of that combined, the States are having to make decisions about, closing hunting in certain places to me that's good sound wildlife management it's unfortunate um but the goal is to try to keep sustainable harvest where we can but where where it's uh starting to have an impact or there just aren't any birds the states have responded accordingly according right. to their management plans right well and we know from you know the the north american model of wildlife conservation obviously but we've seen it played out globally at a global scale as well that what has value gets money you know and right. wildlife that's valued <clears throat> gets you know brings in money stays if it pays it stays that's kind of the that's the saying in in africa you know if it pays it stays we've seen what happens at what happened what's happened in kenya with a moratorium on big game hunting and their big game herds the only the only intact big game herds are in national park. Yeah. That's it. And in other African countries where you still have hunting, regulated big game hunting, they have their they have, the animals are thriving in a lot in a lot of in a lot of examples. And I, I see that parallel with sage grouse too, you know, where it's kind of like you said, <clears throat> if we don't, if we if I'm not going to, if I know I'm not, there's no chance that I'm going to go out and hunt that bird. Well, it's kind of almost like, eh, okay, it's great. It's great to see them, but I don't have a vested interest in it. And I think for people who don't live in sage grouse habitat or have the opportunity to hunt them, they might be asking, oh yeah, who cares? You know, there's probably people listening to this right now that don't even know what a sage grouse is or a sage grouse looks like. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we, we could put the same parameters on uh, American woodcock. Yeah, there's pick your favorite species, wild turkeys. Wild turkeys aren't doing that great. They are struggling. Absolutely. Yeah. In a lot of states, as are bobwhite quail. They're down in, in, yes. in uh, almost all states yeah. overall, long-term trends. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so if you say, if you, if you were to say to guys in Georgia, you know, we're not going to let you hunt turkeys anymore. Well, first of all, you'd have an uproar because that's right. like religion. And second of all, they'd be figuring out a way pretty quick to fix the problem. And third, you'd have guys that just throw up their hands so afraid and be like, eh, well, what do we care? Not gonna hunt them. What do I care? Right. Which is well, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's I mean, 
It's the truth. Yep. And I always, you know, a number of people I've talked to, I mean, they're, they're big game hunters or they're just not that big of bird hunters, but they said, well, why, why should I care about sage grouse? And one of my immediate reactions is, well, the fact that a once very widely distributed um, and, and, you know, uh, strong populations, a bird that, that occupied, uh, you know, how many states across the West, 14 states and, and provinces across the West, the very fact that that, uh, and liberally harvested in prior times, um, and said to be in the tens of millions uh, prior to European settlement, the very fact that that critter was even being contemplated to be listed under the Endangered Species Act should be a concern to every sportsman and woman on the planet, and every citizen, quite frankly, as well. Um, it's, and we saw how things played out with lesser prairie chickens. Uh, if you go back a little further to Atwater's prairie chicken, I mean, that was the prairie chicken subspecies of the East. We may have talked about some of this stuff last time we were on. We may be treading that's, old turf that, here. That's okay. That's good, okay. Yeah. But, you know, if you think about that, uh, that that should be a concern to everybody. Who's to say it wouldn't be mule deer next or antelope? Now, yeah. and that's, and you're, man, you hit the nail on the head there because everywhere you go, sage grouse habitat is mule deer habitat. In it's an, habitat. It's antelope habitat or pronghorn right. habitat. In the Golden Triangle, it's elk habitat. Yep. You know, it's like these birds are sharing habitats with some pretty uh, celebrity a-list celebrity animals you know and if the bird's not doing well guess what's not in great shape your habitat and it's only a matter of time until your mule deer well, we, we know mule deer are struggling and it's the same thing we see mule deer struggling in areas where sage grouse are struggling so you know, when we talk about the habitat too i think sometimes people look at at, at sagebrush and they see they don't see the subtleties of the range quality like we were talking earlier we were in a, a couple of very different situations oh, yeah. when we were hunting and the condition of that habitat was painfully obvious it's not always as obvious in certain areas and i, I don't have a specific example but where i'm going with this is it may look like beautiful sagebrush um, but the understory may not be loaded with forbs and bunch grasses. So the quality of that sagebrush, uh, they have to have the sagebrush for the cover and, and uh, for winter food and nesting and all that. But they've got to have the forb component and they've got to have that bunch grass component too. And, and so sometimes quality can be a misleading thing. And that's the same thing for mule deer. I've had any number of people say, well, we've got great habitat. Do you? Right. <laughs> so it, it was it's not quite it, as simple as you think it is so yeah it was helpful for me in the process of creating this sage grouse project this this film um it was a couple of different folks talked about sage the sagebrush ecosystem as if it were a miniature forest yeah mark really, coined that there you go mark, mark twain coined it as a, an old growth uh, forest in miniature form and it is. It's a hundred percent. And we know from managing forests that if in in species that need regenerative growth and fresh growth, like grasses and forbs and browse, like mule deer, for example, or woodland grouse, like rough grouse in the east, um, in the upper Midwest, they they do best where there's young regenerative growth and whether that comes through forest controlled forest fires or wildfires or patrol burns or prescribed burns wildfires or logging you know and i'm not saying we're going to go log the sagebrush ecosystem right. but that's where that fire plays a big part in this picture when you've got stuff that hasn't burned in a century or that has burned so hot because of cheatgrass that it can't regenerate. There's so many factors at play here, and they affect so much more than sage grouse. And I think that is why, that's the why for me. You know, I, I want to be able to take my kids out to the sage grouse habitat in September, put them behind my new pup, and let him work up a bird and shoot it, fetch it, take it home grill it up and have them enjoy that whole process. You know, I want my wife to, to, to take one of those birds. 
Yeah. And take it home. And we have, you know, we have jars full of feathers. My kids are, my kids are bird fanatics. We have, we don't, I don't think they throw any feathers away at all. And so they have jars and jars and jars full of feathers, including slow making business. Yeah. <laughs> including, including, he's got a sage grouse pillow. Come on. Nobody, nobody, <laughs> nobody. Nobody. No, but here, here, so here's an example too, Ed. I had Ramsey Russell on the podcast and as a hunting guest in November. Ramsey is probably, well, he is the most widely traveled wing shooter that I know. I mean, probably maybe extant, you know, but this man's been all over the world wing shooting, mostly waterfowl, but wing shooting. He's a bird aficionado. And I had my oldest go in the other room and pluck a rear fan feather, the little black tip ones with the or black feathers with the white tip on them. Yeah. I had her pull one out of the jar and hand it to him and say, Mr. Ramsey, do you know what this is from? And I'm not putting Ramsey under, I'm not throwing Ramsey under the bus at all, but I think this is indicative of our, of, you know, our society as, as a whole, he had no idea where that feather came from. And then, so I explained it was from a sage grouse. He's like, oh, that's really cool. And I said, now to give you an even better picture, I showed him a photograph of a Cheyenne dog soldier headdress, war bonnet. And they use those, 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 yep, those, those rump feathers, those white tip rump feathers. And when they dance, those things bounce. And that dance looks an awful lot like sage grouse on a lek when those, fe those, those feathers are bouncing. <laughs> And it, he was so appreciative of it. It was, but it was a cool, it was a cool connection there. Yeah. You know, and I, I just, I hope that this film is able to bridge some of those gaps and raise some awareness and be like, Hey, these birds are struggling, but we still have hundreds of thousands of them in Wyoming alone. <laughs> you know, it's not too late. And we we well, we, we can help these things. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and you know, I've I've noticed of late um, the the ending of the hunting shows um, on Eastman's was fair chase is the only way to you know hunt and pursue big game. I, I got that wrong, but but now it's trophy hunting is conservation. I'm hearing that a good bit, you know. Trophy is a relative term, in my opinion, and quite frankly, it doesn't have a clear definition because it can mean anything. And I may have told you this, but I can't, not certainly not the last podcast, but maybe just in passing. And then when we were in, sure. in uh, Utah, I, when Drake put on a, his very first point and held his first wild rooster and it all came together. And I mean, that's the first time it really came together on a very difficult bird, probably the most difficult bird for a young pointer because they run. Oh, yeah. And he caught this damn bird red-handed in a chunk of grass right by the cornfield in the evening and held it tight for a good bit of time till I got up there and I walked up and I didn't think there was anything there. This cockbird runs out in the field like, wow, this is going to happen. And he gets up, I killed him dead and it all came together. That was a trophy for me. Absolutely. And you know, sage grouse are becoming more of a trophy bird. Mm -hmm. This is kind of where I was going with this is Wyoming doesn't have a permit system yet. They may enter entertain that idea. Um, Oregon's had it for a long time. Utah's had it for a while. Um, and other states may be contemplating it down the road. Um, but, you know, they're going to get managed more like a trophy bird. But for me personally, even in an area where I can liberally harvest them, um, if I have foreign possession, I still have my own personal limits. Sure, sure. So, you know, I, I, I like to set a two possession limit max um, for any given state. And Wyoming, it's a little more liberal for me because I know there's more birds. Right, uh, right. Colorado, I'll maybe take two. Um, but I love to eat them. But, uh, you know, it's just it's a personal thing. So I manage myself like I'm trophy hunting, if you will. Right, right. So, you know, it's just a different perspective. And it's such an icon of the West. But, um, you know, I hope we always have long-term, sustainable, harvestable populations. Um, but it's getting dicey. And it's really dicey in some states, particularly west of us in that right. great Houston country. And it, it would not surprise me if the 
if there's a petition down the road to re you know to re-engage the list or reinitiate a listing process for sage grouse and given the status now it wouldn't surprise me if the great basin population gets separated out potentially uh, as a distinct population unit and gets listed and is threatened yeah. they're really doing poor and they've got a lot of threats that haven't been addressed we're still lucky here in wyoming montana you know, yeah. Colorado didn't have a big bunch of birds, but we've got some damn good habitat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in it's the thing when you when you live in the epicenter of of a habitat of a species habitat or core area, you do tend to get a little jaded view because you're like, well, I got lots of birds. What's 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 the deal? You know, I told you the other day, driving back and forth to one of my favorite places to fish, it's a two hour drive, you know, down and back, and I've done it half a dozen times this summer and i've seen four sage grouse roadkill dead on the highway i have driven that stretch of highway over the last 10 years hundreds of times i i can't count how many times i've driven it i've seen in all that 10 years i've seen one grouse dead on the road this year i've four seen this year four <laughs> this year now i hate seeing them dead on the road but that tells me there's probably quite a few birds flying around, yeah, running around out there. Point, no question. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully there's a bright spot. You know, I don't want this podcast to be all doom and no, gloom. No, no, not gloom and doom. But, but, but it awareness that we still yeah, have. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, you and I have a shared passion about those birds. You know, that was the first experience that we got to engage in together. And I hope we get to do it again because I had it darn good time yeah me too um you got a break in your filming schedule <laughs> maybe we can uh, put something I, I i it's gonna be tight this season um you know the the wingman side of things we don't get rolling really until um you know november end of november first part of december right. because the bread and butter is waterfowl and and quite honestly waterfowl is a heck of a lot easier to film than upland is oh, um but I've got, a, <laughs> I've got a, I've got a, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Anyway, we'll see if if we can make it happen. If I can get away, I'll definitely give you a holler because I would, right. I'd like to hook that up. But speaking of that, you got a young dog that you're bringing up. You just alluded to the pheasant thing. Yep. How's Drake doing? He's doing good. He's antsy as hell because his dad was laid up for, you know, about five weeks and <laughs> not even taking him on a walk, but he's coming around nice. I ran him in a NAVDA natural ability test and, and, and he, he pl placed, I guess is the right word. He got a hundred points and a third prize, which okay. wasn't exactly what I wanted, but you know, the reality is what got him was the tracking piece of that. I hadn't trained on that much, Okay, but he pointed and held so, and this is after hunting season at the end of the hunting season, like we wouldn't even hunt with him when you and I were yeah, out. Yeah. We didn't ready to blow the birds up and we're trying to get a, a film production together. So we use the old dogs, but he, um, toward the end of season, well, throughout the whole season, I just did what everybody I've talked to with pointing dogs told me to do. Let him, let him run and blow him up. He'll figure it out. And sure enough, he figured it out. First thing he figured it out on was hen pheasants. I never, I couldn't oh, yeah. put a bird under him to save him. Save him <laughs> I felt bad for him. He was like, ah, I can't shoot. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm holding my point. What's wrong with you? Take that uh, poor dog to a preserve season. someplace. Yeah, right. Well, I did preserve hunts with him just off and on. I didn't want to do too much of that. But yeah, yeah. I did three or so, and, and he's just rock solid. And shows beautiful hunting instincts and locks up. And then during the test, he, they plant four birds for you. But if you, unless you're going first, there's multiple birds out there. He found six, pointed all of them, held tight. Judges were thrilled with that. He got a perfect score on that. He's as watery. The other part of that test is, will they enter water? And, I mean, he's as watery as it comes. Uh, he just jumped right in. But then the track, he kind of got off. It was interesting because um, – the, the young man before me didn't pick up his track bird or even find it dog kind of gave him the paw and ran off i felt bad young kid young handler probably 12 years old but we came in afterwards and drake got off the track but he got down the trail of that other bird not his bird and 
boy perks up and he takes off and he catches that bird in midair and <laughs> brought it to hand. I'm like, well, does that count? Because <laughs> I knew he wasn't on his right track. And I'm like, no, yeah, we're going to yeah. give you a rerun. So he gave him a rerun and he, he did he did better on that one. But anyway, he's doing good. He has I haven't been training a lot this summer. Been, you know, recovering myself, but also right. taking lots of walks. But uh, he's ready to go. I'm going to be real interested to see how he handles uh, sharp tail grouse. That's the first thing we'll go after. He, he hasn't held one yet. He came close one time last year, but I think once he puts that piece of the puzzle together with that bird, he'll be fine. Um, toward the end of the season, he, he did the cock, couple cock birds and uh, covey of quail. He did beautiful on this covey of quail. Same hunt. He just got in the pheasant and we got into a nice big covey of quail and uh, he held the covey and dad screwed up and was in a bad position and shot twice and missed, but then we got singles and he held multiple singles and so yeah it was uh that was a good hunt and then he did we were in wyoming i was up hunting with a buddy around casper and he held a wild chucker too so nice that was the end of the season so he's uh i mean i've got nothing but high hopes i have no hunts at all for big game this year except a late season elk hunt with my cousin um who's who's got als and we this is a real special family hunt for you us were able, I'm, you were yeah. able to put one something together then i was able to get something together uh over by grand junction so we're going to do that and i got a cow tag in my pocket but right. really it's all right. about him so i just bought points this year because this year's all for drake so and deke too my old lab he yeah. still gets some birds too so how's your young dog doing he's doing good man um Unlike you, we've been training our butts off. Um, well, yeah, I is, get good is, because, because yeah, and and it's like, well, it's hundred degrees here today, and <laughs> it's like I get to get up at four o'clock in the morning to work him before work, and it's like, no, I'm not getting up that early to go work with <laughs> my dogs, but I can't, I can't work him right straight away in the evening either. Um, so uh, we're getting about four days of a week of, of work in you know about how old anywhere. is he now? uh he is a, a little over a year um, oh so he's hell he's ready for all kinds of good stuff oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah yeah and i and i held him back last year i didn't hunt, hunt him i took him on a one little fun hunt with my daughter put him on a slip lead and she held him and he yeah. ended up he ended up fetching a goose you know and and that was cool but this season yeah he's gonna get it He's got a lot of lot of a lot to learn about marking in the river, and I've lost I've lost some bumpers when it's when it's yep. you know when it's horizontal up you know upstream of him and he can mark it and track its track its descent. He's you know he doesn't miss when he can see it, but if he's got to go downstream, he goes to obviously where his mark is and the bumper is already thirty yards further down, so it's getting that head up and spotting cracking yeah and, tr and tracking right. and he'll figure it out it's cost well, me well costed me bumpers but um you know that's we're still working on back he's a little soft on whistle stop because he's he's so birdie you know when i send him and it's trying to trying to get him stopped at distance he's like no nah, i'm hunting you know he's head down and, and, he, and he's hunting it uh, it's like, okay, I'm sacrificing some control for a whole lot of drive, which, okay. Yeah, you know, it's always the, it's always the trade-off. They're marking right. a little bit when you instill the control on blinds, but it'll all come back together. I, oh, yeah. I, yep. I, I saw that in every dog I trained that, you know, the blind work tends to, and the control tends to bring them down just a little bit or affects their marking uh at some level but it all comes together you know i'm running i'm running memory drills in the yard with him in the, yep. in the in the cool of the evening and honestly it's it's more to get him to remember where stuff is placed than it is distance because it's it's my backyard you know it's not huge but man Ed, he's crushing those it's you know it's like i bring him out and i'm working different hand signals in to those marks so I'll, I'll, I, I kind of combine memory drills with baseball where yeah. he's at the pitcher's mound. I walk him around, place, place marks, make him sit at heel, drop the mark. Then we move on. 
And, you know, when you first start, he wants to pick them up and bring them with you. And it's like, no, you know, leave them. But uh, then, and then it was just sent casting him from heel with straight casts and he was pretty good. So then now we've transitioned that drill into he's at the pitcher's mound. I'm at the, I'm at the plate. And then the bases are those memory marks. And so I'm going, you know, over or back, you know, all these different things that are transitioning into more in the field. The other day I took it fishing with me up in the mountains and we worked on steadiness the entire time, obviously, because I can't have him jumping in a, in a pool, spooking my cutthroats, (laughs) which he did a really good job of actually. He did a really good job and almost He's more controllable than my old dog, actually, because he's more he's more willing to please. He wants to please. He wants to work. You know, I can I can give him correction and he he might like. And then within two seconds, right back in the game mentally. And I'm like, wow, that is impressive. Um, I've been working Drake. You know, when I am working him, it's so I I got him specifically for Upland. I know he's a versatile dog and. But I haven't really done anything, you know, other than river marks and and like I say, he's watery, watery as hell. Just you know, no different. And it's nice to have a lab because there's a little competition there, you know. So if, if mm-hmm. Deep drives in and goes for a lake uh, swim to get his bumper, uh, well, he it's amazing what having a Labrador and an Upland dog does for, especially the Upland dog. Yeah. The bird dog. I feel like it it really shores up their retrieving ability. Yeah. No, he's he's a retrieving fool. That's, That's for sure. Cool. That's um, super cool. And I'm doing stuff that most pointing guys would just go, oh, for God's sakes, really? <laughs> you, know, but, you know, when I picked him up, it's really funny. I, I don't know if I told you this story. When I picked him up, the guy that sold him to me, I actually was his judge in the AKC Master National in 2013 in Kansas. Okay. And we put these pieces together after I got his name from a guy in Wyoming who has a poodle pointer, lives down in the southeast corner. I ran into him just at random over in Nebraska, and we were shooting the bull. And he he had a gorgeous dog, full brother to to Drake laying behind me here, full brother. And um, it was just a repeat breeding. And I got I got the guy's name. It's like, man, that name's familiar. The kennel, and I just we start putting. I read on his website. He'd been, he runs labs in the national. We started putting the pieces together. When I showed up, I goes, ah, Chris, he goes, Hey, Ed, yeah, you're now you remember me. I'm like, yeah. And he said, yeah, you threw four of my five dogs out. <laughs> <laughs> my best one. I'm like, you still want to sell me the dog? I drove a long way, man. <laughs> he said, yeah, I will. But, uh, he uh he said hell you can train them like labs. Uh, pointer guys will tell you you're crazy. He runs his through the double T and, you know, baseball and double T and the whole works. And, you know, I make my dog sit. Yeah. And, uh, That's unheard of, of unheard of for a bird dog. A lot of pointer guys don't do that. Yeah. 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 They're afraid it'll, you know, of a number of things, but you know, I don't see it being an issue with Drake. <laughs> he's, yeah. I think he's pretty well differentiating what his jobs are. So they're smart, you know, and, and yeah. I, I think, I think you're right. And, and they're smart. They figure stuff out. Um, you know, those instincts are, are bred in them. It's like trying to get to get a lab that doesn't want to retrieve stuff or doesn't want to hold stuff in its mouth. They're bred to do that, you know. And and yeah, you can you can train it out of them if you're not careful. But right. man, for the most part, they know they know what they they know what they're supposed to do. You well, know? you know, and you got to figure if if they're if you're waterfowl hunting, unless you're just a jump shooter, right. you know, it's all you do is jump shoot. Um, I just, I don't know how you don't teach the dog to sit and be a, a little gentleman or lady in the blind. I just I don't, don't know, know how you do it. So. I don't, I don't either. I, I don't either. You know, <laughs> for, if you're going to have a versatile breed, like, like Drake. Um, yeah. I think you have to teach that because there's going to be times when they need to be able to just sit and chill. Yep. You exactly. know, hunt, a- absolutely. It's, it's no different than, and I haven't done this with much with Hondo. He, I, I, did get to sniff out and flush some chuckers last year on an antelope hunt. Um, we got into a couple coveys on my wife's antelope hunt. I, I purposely held Hondo back on on Upland because I killed 60-some roosters over Mackinac before he was a year old. 
Yeah. We had we had put and take birds in Sheridan, outside of Sheridan, Wyoming, and it was like they're they're pen raised. They're they're the perfect thing to turn a puppy into a bird dog in one season. Yep. And my goodness, he was to this day he hits pheasant scent and he just goes nuts. Yeah. And you made that comment. You were like, I can't tell when he's birdie because he's so happy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> he's just happy to be hunting hunting upland birds, but. You know, my best labs, uh, just speaking of pheasant scent, the best two labs that I had, three, three that I had on upland and trailing um, were the ones that I did an awful lot of trailing exercises with dead yep. birds yep. and trail them out. And uh, I didn't do that as much with Deke or his mom. Uh, and it kind of showed. Uh, yeah. You know, and maybe it's just who knows what factor it was, but it, just a simple correlation of you know, the dogs I trained the most on those trailing exercises of dragging birds a quarter of a mile and then getting the dog out and letting them run them down, which I you do, that is the tracking. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I think you're right, you know, and I, I need to start doing that with Hondo um, in the evening. Simple to I, do, just you got to remember to do it's, it. <laughs> it's super easy, but yeah, you got to remember to do it. You know, it was one of those things where last year I purposely didn't hunt him at all on upland birds because I was yeah. so... I'm being so hard-nosed on steadiness with him. Yeah. Because as you witnessed, my old dog's not steady. You know, if I, if, and, and yeah, I, I still. A, he was a thief a couple of times. I <laughs> still feel bad about that. Oh, man. But, yeah. The best shot I made, well, I made a couple of good ones in that film, but that one where Deke got bird. and Hondo got the like, Oh, oh Mac. Mackinac was like a little black. He was a streak, dude. (laughs) He will not let another dog. He was faster than Deke was. Oh, man. And (laughs) it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But so I'm trying to avoid that. I'm trying to have a dog that's much more stable and steady. And so I've really drilled that into Hondo. And it shows. He he is a much more steady dog already than Mackinac probably ever, ever has been. But... So I, I didn't do a lot of upland bird hunting with him. I did get him out on the one, just put him on a cubby. You know, it was like, oh man, there's 15 chuckers right there. Let's let's get out. I got the shotgun in the back seat. Let's go see if we can get a couple of those. And he's little, you know, he's like half grown, not even yeah, half right. grown, a third grown. He's out there bopping around through the sagebrush and he was tracking them. I mean, nose down, tail whipping, and he flushed three or four of them. Oh, and, that's I, great. and it was like, that's awesome. Yeah. But I need to do more of that. So that yeah. that's that's where we're at with him. You know, I, I'm excited for the season. I'm excited to get there. I'm in the same boat you're in with your young dog. Season's right around the corner and I'm chomping at the bit. Oh, I am too. Yeah, it's gonna be a good year. I it is gonna be a, a sketchy year though. It's gonna be hit and miss, I think, for bird numbers. I've been getting some some rough reports from Nebraska, um, Sand Hills even and and other areas. Um, this that drought just kicked their ass. I think the I think the habitat got timely rains, and it probably wasn't devastating. I haven't heard any devastating hailstorms, for example. But <clears throat> but I just think the habitat may be in reasonable condition, but the birds just didn't carry over yeah. from the drought. So I I haven't seen the mail carrier reports yet. The summer data are just just starting to come out. Right. I'm calling my buddies and biologists in the field, you know, and asking them. I told you I'd do that before, but you know, it's it's going to be like any bird year. It's hit and missed. In the in the greatest years, you can find them just about anywhere. Yep. Um, but in years like I think this one's going to be, you're going to put some boot miles on. So, yep. Yep. what you yep. usually do with big with uh, with upland anyway, at least. Yeah. You know, and I think. Yeah, I think that's why guys. That's kind of the the draw, the attraction to Upland is part of it is the part of it is the out out walking around. Yep. You know, we're out walking around in the sagebrush last year, and I stopped to say something to the camera guy, and I looked down, and there's a bison sheath laying between my feet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how old is that? How long right. has that thing been laying there? You know, <laughs> holy smokes! It's like there have been bison free ranging in that country for 150 yep. years. No, no, no. So you know, so it's like, wow. That's, that's what I love about that ecosystem. Yes. It's such an under respect. It's like the Rodney Dangerfield of Western <laughs> ecosystem, right? And it's, it's no uh, respect. No respect. It, it just it's so beautiful. 
Yeah. And sometimes I you just sit down and just listen to the wind and look. It's like, I don't even care if there's sage grouse out here. Well, that's just yeah. it. You I know, care for the I, dog more than anything, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. They don't absolutely. look around and think that. They want birds. <laughs> yep. Well, that's why you go hunt pheasants. You know, that's there's, great. there's, you get, they get lots of flushes when you do stuff like that. But yeah, I, I don't know, man. I don't know what fall's going to look like. It's, it's obviously busy. Lots of big Give game stuff. Out. But yeah, we'll I would, I would like to, we'll just have to stay in touch. And if we can meet up for a, even like a long weekend, let's yep. do it. Let's do it. Agreed. Yeah, I need oh. to hike a bunch. Good for the ticker, you know. <laughs> I will be keeping one eye on you and one eye on the horizon. <laughs> yeah, I've been told I shouldn't be out there hunting by myself uh, this year, which I do about 90% of my hunting by myself. So I think I'll have a buddy with me at all times. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, you get, up, you get up this way, holler at me, and if I can make it happen, I will for sure. Sounds great. Cool. Well, Ed, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. As always, it's good to talk with you. Um, you're, you're a fount of knowledge and I, I appreciate you diving deep into the sage grouse thing. And I appreciate the work you do for the, for all wildlife and thank you very much. And I'm excited to share some time with you again this fall, hopefully. Always good to see you, Todd. Uh, really appreciate what you guys do. Looking forward to the, to the film. It's going to be great. Cool. Thanks, man. All right. We'll talk to you later. Have a good one, Ed. See you, Todd.